This episode of the Spectre Cinema Club is brought to you by Red Ruby Cosmetics. Looking to turn the clock back on your skin and show off your inner beauty? Red Ruby is the leading product line in the LA fashion industry, and you can have it in your makeup kit today, starting with our line of high-end lipstick. Shades include Plum Passion, Black Honey, Fuck Off, and Pink Pussy. Get your pre-orders in today. Red Ruby Cosmetics, beauty to die for. Hello, hello, welcome to the Spectre Cinema Club, a horror podcast obsessed with subgenres. I am your host, Devon Taylor. With me, I have my co-host, Mr. Garrett McDowell. Hello, hello, how are we doing? I am doing amazing because, um, you know, we had a we had a little scheduling snafu, so we had to push back the episode on uh, Eddie the Sleepwalking Cannibal. That'll be next week. Um, and in that, I saw that there was an extra week for this month, so we get to tackle five cannibal movies. And I was gonna save this for uh for like a milestone episode, like maybe one fifty or something. But since the opportunity arose, I figured why not? Um, the Neon Demon is one of my all-time favorite movies in my top five. Um, it was one of the movies that was covered in the first episode of the podcast. And I did a double feature of it with uh, It and Starry Eyes. And uh, obviously, first episode of the podcast, very different than where it is today. And uh, I did that episode solo, too. So mm-hmm. um, so um, there's been episodes that in season one that I definitely want to redo, um, you know, with Garrett, obviously, and in the current format of the show and certain movies that like uh, were included in double features that maybe didn't get there their uh, full appreciation. Um, and so we did this with the lore um, and uh, was the first Redux uh, episode of the podcast. So uh, this is uh, the the next one is uh, redoing uh, the, the Neon Demon, given it's, uh, it's due diligence for me. Obviously, if you guys uh, hear the, the theme music, it, the Neon Demon score was referenced whenever um, I had um, my cousin do the, the podcast theme. So uh, this uh, movie's kind of a big deal for me and the podcast. Uh, Garrett, uh, do you remember your first time watching it? Yeah, The Neon Demon was one of those movies that, you know, 2016, uh, I was like 17 years old, um, had just recently got my license. And this was one of those movies that was in that period where I like really started getting into like, quote unquote, kind of indie movies. Um, mm-hmm. And I had just gotten my own, you know, car and all of that. So it, this was among those movies that were in that first kind of batch of I'm get that first kind of taste of independence, you know, when you're in high school and, you know, like my parents wouldn't have wanted to go see this and, you know, dropping me off at the movie theaters just wasn't really something that I did a lot growing up. So this was like one of those, like, I remember this in that kind of batch of I've got my car now, I've got money because I'm working, I can go out and see a movie and spend it, uh, you know, however I, uh, however I deem fit. And uh, yeah, the Neon Demon was one that uh, I didn't love. Uh, I was intrigued by. 
um, I thought had some interesting ideas, was a big fan of reference uh, uh, prior uh, works, Drive in particular, um, and my thoughts haven't changed too much on it. I was surprised to see that, that, you know, in the number of years since watching it, I am still kind of lukewarm on this film. Uh, definitely interesting to go back and see some of the initial reactions because this is quite a controversial movie when it came mm. out. But for me, uh, I still am a, a little uh, just, uh, you know, not not as hot on it as as you are. But I'm excited to to hear kind of why this movie uh, speaks so much to you and why it's, uh, you know, so high in, in your ranking. I'm definitely uh, intrigued to see our conversation here today. Yeah, before we get into like more details of uh, your feelings on this uh, previous rewatch, uh, you said uh, you were high, you you were pretty high on Drive. Uh, you said, or uh, and uh, how did you feel about uh, Only God Forgives, or about any of Reffin's films for that matter? Just to kind of give it a little baseline. Only God Forgives uh, is in that like weird camp of movies to where I get that confused with other movies. I get that in place beyond the pines confused quite often. I've seen neither <laughs> of them. I've seen neither <laughs> of them. Uh, no. Reffin's work is, is kind of, uh, you know, hit or miss for a lot of people. And I know that, you know, only God forgives is definitely, you know, a love it or hate it kind of situation. So the only other film other than Neon Demon and drive that I was more familiar with was Bronson. Uh, mm -hmm. which which I do really like. Uh, but yeah, the uh, I know he's done some TV stuff as well. Um, so I'm not like overly familiar with his work. I'm definitely more familiar with kind of the tropes that people kind of attribute to him uh, and kind of his reputation as a filmmaker. Um, but yeah, eventually I will watch Only God Forgives as well as The Place Beyond the Pine so I can finally differentiate between the two of those. Yeah, well, Place Beyond the Pines is a Derek C. in France movie, not even Refn, but a uh, fantastic I, I don't, film. I don't know if it's like they came out at a similar time. I don't know if their titles are uh, like weird enough to where I don't yeah. I don't know why it, my brain does that. But I'm like, OK, this one is OK. Yeah. OK, I got well, it. Well, it was it was uh, <laughs> it was Gosling in his uh, stoic man era, like when he like really got steeped in it. Um, You know, he kind of had a run of it and. And uh, yeah, I mean, I still haven't seen like the Pusher movies from Refn, um, but uh, I'm I'm not a big fan of Bronson. Like I like it for Hardy's performance, but it's uh, not really a movie. It's like a series of vignettes, really. Sure. And uh, which is fine. And um, and and then I like Only God Forgives more than a lot of other people do. Mm -hmm. um, uh, my one recommendation to people um, that makes it uh, kind of interesting: watch it without the subtitles. Like without the uh without like uh the Thai subtitles, um it it makes it I don't know it, it gives it a different vibe sure and then you're not thinking so much about you know trying to figure out the story of it because then I feel like you can like really just like kind of sink into the that's a that's a uh it, it's a hangout movie but like not a a fun hangout movie I see I um, see yeah. uh, to a to a degree and uh and Chris Stuckman has a really good uh video uh doing an, an analysis on only God forgives that uh, is really interesting yeah, um, it's it's been on my list for a number of years, but like my watch list, it just seems to grow and grow and grow. And then every once in a while, I'll knock one off of it and then it just continues to grow and grow and grow. So, yeah, eventually yeah. one day, one day. Yeah. But um, but Nicholas Winding Refn, um, he's a director that, you know, inspires me as far as um. Uh, me being an aspiring filmmaker and um you know he's a he's a very stylish guy he has a very you know abstract kind of ideas 
and uh, tells very unconventional stories and, uh, you know, he's very uncompromising and, you know, uh, people like to throw out the word indulgent with him or uh, or even call him pretentious, um, which if you watch interviews with this guy, like the dude is a dork, uh, far from pretentious, actually, like he's a total goofball, actually. But, um, you know, and and I've made my thoughts known uh uh, often on here and on Twitter and other podcasts like I hate I hate the criticism style over substance I think it's lazy because I think style is substance um and you know and and I feel like people with winding ref in he kind of has this weird reputation that's just like uh people will instead of saying like oh I just don't like his style or his style's not for me they just say it's bad and I, I don't think that's a, a, a fair correlation, especially even if, um, you know, his films get messy narratively. Uh, mm-hmm. You can't deny that, like, you know, he makes, you know, you know gorgeous looking films. They're great sounding films, um, you know, uh, always very visually interesting, doing different things with editing. Um, so it's like I, I, I feel like it's just unfair to call him like, you know, when I see people say like, uh, you know, again, when people are like, "Only oh God forgets" is one of the worst movies ever, and it's like, okay, have it, ha- have you seen Microwave Massacre? Okay, <laughs> like, uh, there's there's a lot more worse movies out there. Like, again, if, if his style and stories don't work for you, um, that's one thing. But mm-hmm. I, 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 you know, but uh, I think you know, ev- anyone can agree that you know he's a, a, an interesting director to say the least. Um, you know, he's a he's a provocateur to me. You know, he um. And this film is his, you know, love letter to beauty. And like, I'm a very, uh, you know, passionate about just visual beauty and the things that the different things I find beautiful. So um, we got a lot to get into here because I have a I have a compilation of notes uh, that I've been taking literally for years on this movie because I've written pieces on it. Um, I guessed it on the horror queers for their episode on the Neon Demon. So if you want to hear more about um kind of the the queer elements of it and uh some of the gender politics we kind of get into it deeper in that than we probably will here uh for this episode i got more just like a subgenre theories and obviously uh working it into our cannibal month uh so if you want to hear more of like the the queer themes and uh you know text and things like that uh go listen to that episode it's a really fun one uh it was released on my birthday uh, that was about a year and a half ago. So so after today, there'll be three different versions of me talking about this movie. And I think <laughs> I just need to continue that trend because uh, I find more things to to dig into this movie. Uh, the, the more I watch it, I rewatch it a ton. And um, there's also another podcast I want to shout out is uh, the Whole Movie Podcast. Um, they do a fun thing where they'll take one movie and they'll do like eight to ten episodes on it. And they did one on uh, The Neon Demon. Uh, breaking and they do like episodes by scenes basically and it's uh, hosted by uh, Jordan Cruciola and uh, it was co-hosted with uh, Rex- Roxana Haddadi and William O. Tyler and they uh, have a wonderful series uh, breaking this down in like excruciating detail so uh, if you really want to uh, uh, dig into it you can go there um, but we're gonna have uh, some fun digging into this one so let's go ahead and get back into it The Neon Demon, released June 24th, 2016, directed by Nicholas Winding Refn. This was written by Winding Refn, uh, Mary Laws, 
Polly Shenham and also had a lot of input from the ladies in the cast, specifically Elle Fanning as well, uh, was a very collaborative process as far as uh, the, the script when it kind of uh, evolved as the, the shooting went along and the girls had different inputs for their characters. So we love to hear that. Uh, score by the legendary Cliff Martinez, uh, who just really knocks out the park on this one. Um, he is a frequent collaborator. He did the score for Only God Forgives and Drive. Um, and he also uh, did uh, the score for The Wolverine, I believe, um, if I remember correctly. He was supposed to do the score for Logan, so maybe I'm um, uh, misremembering. But Cliff Martinez, fantastic um, composer and has a, a, a banger of a, a score here. Cinematography was done by Natasha Brayer, and this was edited by Matthew Newman. Um, box office, it was a flop, unfortunately, only bringing in $3.4 million at the box office on a $7 million budget, but this was a uh, Amazon original, so, you know, I'm sure it kind of balances out in that aspect. Um, uh, Garrett mentioned this being pretty divisive when it came out. Uh, there is varying opinions on this one. It has a current 58% on Rotten Tomatoes on 261 reviews. And I'll say it was pretty divisive when it, count, when it came out. And I've noticed in the past couple of years, genre fans have uh, been more receptive to it and uh, have uh, kind of given it a, a little more praise or haven't been as hard on it recently. And the voice of the people... Over on Letterboxd, uh, average rating of 3.2 out of 5. Um, some subgenres we're going to be looking at here. Of course, uh, we got cannibalism happening. Uh, we got some other monster stuff going on that I'm excited to get into. Um, this is kind of like a dark L.A. fable in a way. Uh, some fantasy elements to it. Um, so, Garrett, uh, tell me about uh, how you felt on this, uh, on this current rewatch and uh, some subgenre stuff you saw. Yeah, on this current rewatch, um, I went in with uh, an open mind for sure. Um, maybe more of a sharper eye because I was, you know, obviously looking at it for for this particular show. But having just moved to LA myself fairly recently, kind of, I think, colored this in an interesting way. Mm -hmm. Not only knowing kind of like the local uh layout of things geographically but also just some different subcultures even within los angeles itself so that was an interesting kind of experience i'm thankful that i'm not in this industry <laughs> i don't think i have the stomach for it uh, uh pun intended um but yeah this uh, as far as subgenres are concerned you've obviously got the the cannibal side of things i don't know if if bisexual lighting is a, a subgenre but this is you know maybe the king of the castle as far as that is concerned mm -hmm. uh this movie is just brimming um with color um but then also this kind of fish out of water story with with l fanning in this completely new environment um with this rags of riches sort of story maybe not getting you know, riches in a, more of a financial sense, but more in a status sense and what that does mm -hmm. to people. Um, I, yeah, I think that there's um, a real journey that this character goes on in this. But yeah, it also kind of has this sort of fairy tale quality to it, which I, I, I do find pretty compelling. Yeah, I mean, basically all the all the things you say are, you know, things that I love about it and things that I've uh, really mined from it over the many a times I've watched this. Um, I've watched this uh, according to Letterboxd thirteen times since it's what. Holy since it was shit! <laughs> I yeah, I, I watched this uh quite a wow. bit. Wow. And 
and the very first time I watched it, it was only a three out of five for me. And then uh, currently five out of five. Yes, I, I did. Now, I did obviously. note that. Yeah. Yeah, there was a there was a gradual increase of the score because um, I just I remember the first time uh, being just uh, I was so hyped for it the first time I saw it, like expectations through the roof. This was I was in love with Drive at the time. Um, and I was I mean, I was just absolutely hyped for this movie. And um, so just expectation wise, it let me down. And then I also saw a movie that we'll talk about later in a movie map that I was that I was like, oh, man, these were kind of so similar. And this other one was doing more of what I wanted. But then just the more that I kept watching this, um, you know, building out this uh, kind of lore in my mind, because, you know, Refn uh, has this, you know, fantasy version of L.A., and I and yeah and like you said like living in LA it definitely um you know LA sometimes does have this kind of bizarre vibe to it you have these nights and you meet certain people and you're just like are you even real like what what you know what 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 are you what's going on so um I I've always gravitated towards that but the the big theme of uh you know uh ambition in this film is uh, something that's always resonated with me in certain films you know especially in horror films you know where you can really test uh, the limits of you know what are you willing to do for you know fame for success for uh, whatever your goal is and you know relating here like are you literally willing to eat another person to you know gain their beauty and continue working in the industry like that's you know uh, it's wild and um but there's also like a a metaphorical cannibalism as well with it you know being this you know um woman driven uh industry and uh, and I'll say at the top guys like uh, just because of the nature of the film there'll be lots of like you know talking about it in binary terms but I mean it more in like obviously like we're talking uh gender here not like sex stuff because that doesn't really matter but we're talking about just like uh the this uh, uh uh you know women characters um you know th- these are all uh cis straight actresses but in the context of the movie you know who knows who they could be but um as far as uh, some of the stuff that we're gonna be talking about we'll kind of be dealing in just like those kind of terms um but uh, as far as like uh yeah women kind of cannibalizing each other in this industry um you know in a in an industry that is you know known for being scary for women especially you know when dealing with powerful men and things like that but this movie um takes the power away from the men uh you know winding refin even said like he's like i treated the male characters like you know the girlfriend characters are typically treated like they're nothing to me and like once i don't need them anymore that's why they just like disappear out of the movie um so you know and it's an industry where you think like women should be like looking out for each other, you know, while in this you have uh, these three women that are, you know, uh, conniving and, you know, plotting behind Jesse's back, you know, um, whenever under the guise that they're helping her when really, you know, they're grooming her um, to then to then use her to, you know, for their own gains. So um, the, the those things always stick out to me but then of course the 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 style and tone of this movie it's so lavish it's so gorgeous um you know and this is you know Nicholas Winding Refn like it just like his uh again it's his love letter to beauty so this is all the things that he finds beautiful and in the way they present certain things he paints with these big bright gaudy strokes of you know uh you know with the the eye popping color and sometimes the music is so overwhelming um there's like a scene where the club music so loud but the characters are talking but all you can see is the subtitles 
Um, you know, and, and it's ironic how colorful this movie is because most people don't know Nicholas Winding Refn is colorblind. Fascinating. Yeah, uh, this movie does do quite a lot, which we'll be we'll be discussing for sure. But um, yeah, I, I appreciate the passion in which you discuss this movie uh, and talk about it. It's obviously ruminated a lot. I don't know if I'm going to be able to reach your energy, but I'll try and keep up. <laughs> hey, I, this is um, you know if 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 I'm known for any movie on Twitter, it's this one. I uh, preach the gospel of this movie, so you know I'm I'm here just to spread the word, Garrett. So you know I'm. You know, I'm trying to trying to get you on on a uh, team uh, demon over here. Yeah, I'm uh, the I, I'm the 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 kid that you spent the night at their their friend's house for like a sleepover. And then they're one of those families that goes to church on Sunday and you're just also in the congregation. So <laughs> that'll be me. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so uh, that'll make this fun as uh, you being, um, you know, I've seen this movie a shit ton of times. I know it front and back. So but I'm intrigued to see how you handle the 60 second synopsis uh, for those who haven't seen it or maybe have not seen it in a minute. Are you ready, Garrett? I'm ready to go. All right. I got you in three, two, one, go. Uh, we have young Jessie. Uh, she's a 16-year-old uh, new Angelino who just moved to the city of Los Angeles uh, to pursue a career in modeling. She doesn't really feel like that she has any other talents other than modeling, so she dives into this industry pretty head-on, willing to sacrifice qualities and uh, uh, character traits about herself and maybe even her own values and morals in order to get success in this industry. But obviously with that, it definitely comes at a cost. And what does success look like in an industry that is so, uh, so uh, you know, centered on vanity and looks and status? Um, she starts to meet pretty colorful characters uh, in, in surrounding this career choices and tries to really battle it out for her own soul as she tries to make her way through this um, really seedy industry. All right. With five seconds to spare. Thank you. Thank and, you. Uh, and yeah, you know, it's a, uh, it's interesting because it's like when you say some some of the beats of the story out loud, it's like, you know, oh, I've heard this story before, you know, the fish out of water elements, uh, you know, the coming to L.A. kind of thing, um, certain things like that. And then it's also, you know, playing off of tropes of fairy tales. Uh, Nicholas Winding Refn uh, makes a lot of references to different princess stories uh, in various interviews uh, through this movie. Uh, he also has a very fun commentary track with Elle Fanning. Um, uh, you can listen to clips of it on YouTube, but like, if you have the Blu-ray, uh, listen to the commentary. It's very fun and, uh, very, very illuminating. Um, but so, so to kind of start this off, cause, uh, again, like I'm, I'm looking at my, my crazy ridiculous notes here and, uh, uh, you know, not only am I tre treating this like a, 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 a gospel to, to you, but this is also a thesis guys. So let's go <laughs> ahead and, uh, I'll lay out my, that my monster movie stuff, uh, to begin with. And then that'll kind of take us into like the, the themes and more story stuff, because I mean, honestly, the story stuff isn't all that interesting you know she literally comes to la she wants to be a model she books some gigs very easily has you know and very quickly rises up the ladder unimportant mm -hmm. so some uh, uh i i mentioned before uh in last episode i i kind of throw cannibals in this monster category even though cannibals are humans but it's the um it's the element of 
again, not only committing the act physically, but it's like moving past the morality, you know, threshold to 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 get there is like kind of what takes you from being okay you're no longer a human anymore because you're eating other humans so in my mind you're kind of a monster um so there's that kind of basic level and there's not a ton of cannibalism here we don't even get to actually see them eat her we just know that they did and they bathed in her blood and i mean we later see sarah uh swallow her eyeball but that's literally the most we actually see of consuming in this so, so you know, the, the cannibalism is there, but it's, uh, it's part of a ritual, okay? Uh, it's part of a ritual because Ruby, played by Jenna Malone, one of my, one of my wives, I love her so much, and um, she is uh, the makeup artist, you know? So she is the one that kind of uh, creates the beauty uh, within this world of working with these models. She's not a model herself, but she's around them, and she's, you know, what primps them up and, you know, presents them. Um, as uh, these kind of products so so ruby's our witch and then you got sarah and Gigi, her cronies and um it, uh, it, in my theory in the on the horror queers episode i say that ruby has done this ritual before uh ruby and Gigi have not they're her new uh disciples they are following in her they are the new coven members if you will and um and and you know so they're they're kind of uh, following her lead and um and and Gigi represents like uh the the manufactured artificial beauty um you know because she's uh, known as the bionic woman or AKA she's the Frankenstein of the story and then you have Sarah um uh, uh, Nicholas Winding Refn himself refers to her as a ghost uh, multiple times. As she is kind of, um, she's fading beauty, you know, she's, uh, she's been in the game for a while, apparently, even though she's probably only like 28, <laughs> but for them, that's in the game for a while. And, uh, she's fading beauty, you know, she's a uh, beauty of the past. And like, that's, you know, her, her driving force, uh, into also wanting to, uh, steal, steal the youth and beauty away from Jesse, who is our, you know, princess. Uh, we have, um, Christina Hendricks is like her fairy godmother. Um, so there's lots of fantasy elements going on at play. Uh, do you, uh, do, w- how much of that do you agree with? Um, I, I don't know if I necessarily disagree. I think the way that the movie speaks to you is obviously the, the, the way that I see it is, as you had already mentioned, the story isn't maybe necessarily the primary focus here. I think that there's definitely an emphasis on style. Um, and we can have a whole episode or a whole separate discussion about the, just kind of the concept of style of substance. Um, and I think that if that's not a, a condemnation of this movie or a criticism of this movie, I think it's at minimum a descriptor of the movie, uh, negative or positive or otherwise. I think that this movie does prioritize style over substance and that might not even be a bad thing. Um, I think that there's plenty of albums that I love out there that are style over substance, but the, you know, the, the way that they speak to me, I think invites this sense of imagination that you're able to kind of place this story on how it speaks to you. And so I think if you see kind of this more of a monster, a classical monster sense to it, you know, who am I to say that that's wrong? I think for myself, the theories and the connective tissue of maybe some of the metaphors here isn't quite where I immediately first go um i think that 
we had you had already kind of talked about this idea of cannibalism and that yes there is an act of cannibalism that happens in this movie but Mm -hmm. i think more often we find that this movie shows cannibalism as a unifying theme rather than like a a tangible act of people eating people it's Mm -hmm. more people eating people in more of a metaphorical sense too um Mm -hmm. there's there's both so it definitely fits into our category here but i think with what we see uh with with Gigi and sarah is this cannibalism in the sense of i want what you have and the way that i take that is by gobbling you up you know this is like this is an industry that people have described in a town frankly that Mm -hmm. people have described as eating you up and spitting you out which is Mm -hmm. quite literally what happens to jesse in this movie so yeah i think where i go out with this film uh where this movie kind of inspires my imagination or maybe some of the theories that i would have um are more how this film takes this industry and plays with it using horror angles and in using a horror perspective um, which is something that we have seen before which i think will uh, you know factor in with my movie math um but yeah the theories of the of the witches and the witchcraft and something like that i don't blame you for going in that direction because like i said i think that this movie does have this very dreamlike sort of fairy tale aspect to it so yeah i think it, it makes sense to to for you to go uh, towards those directions kind of uh, initially hmm I mean, I think whenever I say, you know, style is substance, I feel like this is a movie that I really would point people towards because, you know, it is a part of Reffin's whole, you know, um, you know, artist statement behind this is, you know, that he's presenting it in just like beauty is beauty. Um, There's not like, you know, it's it's a it's a pure, you know, thing. It's a whole, but it's also not uh, deep. Uh, you know, like there's this whole underbelly to this world, you know, there's history between these characters, you know, like certain characters know each other, you know, Ruby knows, uh, has a history with the photographer Jack, like, and they know the, the person that does, uh, that runs the fashion show. Like, so there's this whole world, but like Reffin's like, we don't have time to dig deep into those. Well, I'm going to give you the surface of, you know, of this world of some of these ideas. Uh, but really it's like, you know. Uh, his statement like you know there's certain scenes that because even though this is like you know um, more interested in you know doing a lot of showing with its storytelling and having these long entrancing shots to really just like kind of steep you into the world and um and I and I'm I lean that way with films in general I'd say is like you know what between character driven movies or like world driven movies or like idea driven movies you know i i really do like a movie that i can like kind of you know uh that a movie takes the effort to like really seep it in but you know again like it, this movie is his like whole exploration of the concept of beauty what does it mean to you like uh what what value does beauty have you know so it's like that's where you can kind of uh, weigh in how much you kind of care about you know what the story is saying or what the product itself just like kind of represents as well so uh, it, it can kind of be looked at you know in in both ways he's trying to do it both ways and obviously a film is, that makes it difficult and you're not going to get everybody on your side when you're trying to uh, walk you know down two different pathways at once um, so that's where I, I totally understand the the struggle that certain people have with uh, getting on the the frequency of this movie mm-hmm. um uh, you know especially you know like you know take jesse 
Like she is, you know, she is paper thin, but on purpose, you know, like she is a, you know, traditionally beautiful looking young blonde girl. Um, she's, you know, has the, you know, comes from small town backstory. Uh, she literally says herself, like in that uh, scene with Dean of like describing herself, she's like, I'm not talented at anything else. I don't have hobbies. I haven't finished school. Like I'm not smart. Like, so she's literally telling like us, like I am a literal nothing person mm-hmm. and all I have is beauty. And like, and that's her, you know, buying into this idea. And like, you know, so her, it, she's already ensnared in, you know, LA at that point that she's already bought into the idea of like, well, I'm nothing except for my beauty, you know? So, you know, it's also hard for, you know, if, if you're a person that like uh, watches a movie and like you really need to connect with the protagonist to to go along with it, then you might struggle with this movie because like she's literally there, you know, to tell the story, but is not there. She's like a definitely, you know, classic audience surrogate. And then the fact that they kill her off at the, you know, in the third act, you know, with, you know, 25 minutes left. I was like, oh, shit. I was like, yeah, she really didn't matter. I mean, she does. She's, you know, the 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 idol, if you will, uh, of the story. But, you know, even in that angle, you know, so um, as far as, you know, traditional stories with a traditional protagonist, it's, you know, hard for everyone to latch on to this one. Yeah, I think that you had talked about your kind of natural proclivity towards enjoying movies is more of kind of like the world and, and feeling like it really firmly sets you into more of like a transport experience you know and like really going into like this this film and, and really seeking uh, or seeping into it uh and, and more of the environment in which the story takes place and for me i generally usually go character um uh character and then uh themes like kind of hand in mm-hmm. hand and style obviously is is an, is important but not necessarily everything to me um uh and in this film that is really on the is really on the forefront of this. And I think that this in a way, even though I'm not as familiar with his work, I think that I would agree in the sentiment that this is like Reffin's most Reffin work, you know, like this is his film that like, he's a filmmaker that's not really known for having great dialogue in his movies, terribly complex characters and is much more of a stylish, sleek, filmmaker that really emphasizes on mood uh and i just think that i i don't even know if irony would be the right word to use because i think it's intentional but this is a movie that is very stylish not as substantive narratively uh and that is also something that is kind of happening within the context of the movie too. Mm -hmm. Like Jesse's character, like you've said, doesn't have as much substance to her as, as, as a person, as a character, but is mostly there for, for looks. And I think my biggest hang up with the movie is I'm fine with that. If Refn is trying to make some statement about this industry and is using these characters more as a vehicle to get to that point. And I think that he is, I just don't, think that the statements that he has to make about the modeling industry are super unique or what you wouldn't think just you know even before seeing this movie i think that it's almost kind of a cliche in a sense that models are like these vapid valley girl idiots who just kind of are rail thin and don't have really much to them other than being pretty uh i even kind of made a joke on letterbox that this movie 
says a lot of the similar things that Zoolander does, <laughs> just it, in a yeah. and in a, yes. in a in a funnier way. This movie is just kind of like fucked up Cannibal Zoolander, but maybe not as good um, yeah. just for me. So, like, I think that if Refn really is going to prioritize this stylish sense to him, which I think is, I I think is a I'll I'll say this. I think that the movie gives a lot of credit for style, and I think Cliff Martinez is actually like a super like underrated component of that style. Uh, this is even though this movie is not one of my favorites. This is a score that I have come back to time and time again. Mm-hmm. This like all through college, this was like on repeat as like a homework studying like score. I would have this on all the time while I was working. Uh, really excellent score. I put it on during yoga. Put it on during yoga. I could see that too. Absolutely. Yeah. But I think the style of this movie to me feels a little dated. I'll say that. Like to Mm. me, kind of like I know it's the neon demon, but I think that there is a lot of this movie, not all of it. I'm not, I'm not being hyperbolic or anything, but there is a lot of this movie that is just, we'll sit the character in the center of the frame and put some neon lights on them and some bright LED lights, which for me, I'm just kind of like, okay, you know, like there's some, there's definitely other shots. I'm not like, I'm not mm. dismissing this. this well, is we'll a, get into that that yeah. specific shot because there is a significance to it and yeah. a reason it's as simple as it is, but we'll, yeah. we'll get to that in a moment. Yeah, but. I just feel like there are quite a few, I will say, shots in this movie where it's a character sitting on something or laying down or standing and looking off into the middle distance and there's colorful lights on them which i'm like great cool but to me again and it's in your movie math not to spoil it but there are other films that have done that and i think are Mm -hmm. you're composed in a way that isn't just like a magazine spread i think that this movie is intentional in that way of this if you were to open vogue or vanity fair this is the image that you would see totally intentional makes place uh, makes sense for the subject matter and everything i just think that a motion picture should have a bit more movement to it uh, <laughs> and this movie feels very static in a lot of ways mm. which i feel like stylistically is something that a lot of people really give this movie credit for, which I totally get, but I just think that it's, it's a little too static for me. Um, and, uh, yeah, we'll get into it more, but just for me, I think that's why I'm just a little lukewarm, lukewarm on this. I'm like the character stuff, not quite there. Oh, it's intentional. Okay, great. The stylish stuff, not as much there for me either. Mm-hmm. Love the music though. Music's sick. Again, <laughs> it's a, again, it's a, it's a frequency thing because I mean, all the, a lot of the things you're saying are true. Like I can't argue like, because yes, like some of the stuff is intentional. Like, um, you know, because, uh, you know, you described it that it's a, a, mo- a, mo- a motion picture should be moving, but then you're, you know, a motion picture is also a collected, a collection of individual frames, you know, yeah. and you can kind of, you know, think of it, you, you compared it to a magazine spread before you said that I was thinking of it as like this movie's like going to an art gallery, you know, you walk around, you gaze at a certain image for as long as you need to, to yeah. like kind of really get like what your interpretation is on it and I think that's part of the reason I find it so rewatchable because I love letting this movie entrance me. Like it is so easy 100%. for me to, yeah. to fall into that hypnotic state and just really absolutely, just be like, absolutely. I, like it, like it is just my, it is just on my vibe level. It just really is. And, and so, so I, I totally get it. Cause I mean, this is a, you know, an hour and 50 minute movie and I know a lot of people uh, feel that. And again, for me, I could watch, I, I would watch the, the three hour ref and cut if it would, if it existed, um, you know, I could again, just like kind of hang out in this for a little while, mm-hmm. but 
Um, let's, but there is, you know, again, he is still in, in, oh, the, the dated part. That's what I want to uh, talk about was, mm-hmm. um, I feel like that, you know, is in a way on purpose too, because it kind of maybe doesn't feel like a clear, maybe it's not a cliche, but it's just the fact that it's just like, you know, the industry has been this way for that long. And it just hasn't changed. Sure. Like that's why it's you know tapping on some of the same themes as Zoolander that came out in two thousand and one, <laughs> and then you know same and then like you know other previous uh, movies about the fashion industry and the models from the eighties, and it's just like yeah things have not changed in this industry, but times around it update you know so let's just update the look, let's update the music, and and you know and unfortunately it's just like this, the sad truth of the industry that it's just like. It, it feels like even even, you know, obviously, you know, fads change, you know, uh, you know, what people look for in art, what people look for in movies that changes. But, you know, but the, the product is still the same, you know, no matter what, right. how you dress it up, no matter what shade you put on it, yeah. uh, the, the product is still kind of remains. So um, I want to get into kind of the more of the the horror spooky stuff of it, because this is uh, kind of the most ambiguous part of it. I've even seen some people. Uh, pull the is this even a horror movie card and come on you know they they ate a girl and they bathed in her blood <laughs> this is a horror movie okay um but you know so the the way that i kind of see it is again like uh, ruby um ruby has been around you know she's been in this game for a, a minute minute and uh she is she's done this before you know she's uh orchestrated some witchy stuff and uh, the reason I can also go into witchy stuff is because, um, you know, and there's, uh, you know, the the Elizabeth Bathory, uh, you know, parallels with Ruby. Um, you know, she became, you know, within folklore as being uh, the blood countess that she apparently, you know, the, the tales that she bathed in the blood of virgins to preserve her youth, uh, which is, you know, what Ruby is trying to do. She's, you know, obviously seen bathing in the blood after they kill Jesse and um and and the thing is so you know Gigi and Sarah they're new to this because they're kind of um they're they're at their wits end they're they're you know worried about getting replaced and about you know being on the way out so Gigi it's natural for her that she's you know looking for the shortcut because um you know that she gets all the the plastic surgery and all the things to uh, keep updating herself so she's like okay uh, I can only get so much plastic surgery. What else can I do? Oh, bathe in blood for youth. Got it. I'm in. And then Sarah, again, you know, she just feels uh, that she's being aged out, you know, and like she's getting to that point of like, I've been around and like I'm being replaced. And if you notice, you know, uh, Gigi, Sarah and Jesse are all variations of, you know, tallish, lean or not even lean, skinny, blonde gals. You know, they're all variations on each other. And, um, but where the, where the, the, the ritual goes wrong is, uh, they, they groom Jesse too good because the thing is they got build her up, you know, they got build her confidence up. She has to know that she has this pure beauty and this power and, you know, you build them up and then it's, it's like, uh, you know, fattening your cows or whatever, or, um, plumping up other, you know, food before you, you know, butcher it to, to, mm-hmm. to package, you know, more meat stuff here going on. And um, but um, they do too good of a job. Okay, Jesse, Jesse. Once she starts believing, she lets the neon demon in. So she is now possessed by the neon demon, and that's um, this happens at the fashion show. Uh, the fashion show is 
her, um, you know, she's had her photo shoot with Jack, which we're going to get into that scene here in a minute too. Um, but then she gets picked to close out the fashion show and this is her first time in the fashion show. And, uh, you know, Gigi is getting pissed off that everything is coming so easy to her. And this is when Jesse is empowered and she feels it. So yes, this scene is, feels very much like we're just kind of looking at, uh, Elle Fanning in neon lights and she's kissing mirrors. Um, this scene was going to be done underwater, but they didn't have the money and the budget for it. Um, so it would have been a little more motion for you, but, um, but this is, uh, uh, the, the first part where Jesse accepts the demon and, and that's why the ritual of killing her and then bathing in her blood and eating her doesn't work out and ends up killing the girls in like the epilogue. So that's my, my ritual angle. Yeah. For me, I think, you know, I, I don't know kind of how I, I've been with, with like kind of deciphering movies or movies that are maybe a little bit um, obscure or invite that kind of imagination. I, I think that I am more interested or compelled to do that, to like think of a, of a theory if it enriches my experience or enriches what these characters are going on, maybe in a more of a metaphorical sense or, you know, uh, just I think bolsters what's what's happening here. I think for me with this film, as much as I, I love everything that you're saying for me is not quite enough to be like, oh, OK, rewatch it with that perspective. I think it's just kind of like, oh, cool. Neat detail. Still don't quite care about these characters, you know? <laughs> yeah. I mean, and, and it's like um, it's like, you know, we've mentioned before on, you know, as we've kind of figured out each other's taste and what the way that and also the way that we watch movies. Mm-hmm. Is um you know uh, and you mentioned it you you jokingly mentioned it in the Halloween ends but it's it's very true that like you know you you're kind of more about you know what I see on the screen what is given to me that is what I'm taking in versus I take that but then I also add in like well there there's that thing that might infer this and then and so I like to look at a lot of the the potential. Or, you know, coming up with these theories to kind of fill in some of the, the details yeah. that people are, you know, looking for. And and again, it kind of goes to, um, you know, the debate where people are like, oh, well, I shouldn't have to do homework to understand a movie. And it's like, well, that's if you're looking at it in a negative way. But like, isn't it fun to to kind of do some of this extra digging and pull out some of the stuff that is maybe not explicitly there, but could be there. Because again, like Winding Refn, he paints with broad strokes, you know. He's an impressionist painter with, you know, broad strokes. He goes, I'll lay out a few ideas for you. And then if you want to, you know, kind of find some of the deeper stuff. And and I think that it, it also with this film comes back to, he's a man. You know, he is a man. Mm-hmm. He, uh, he has not come out as queer, but... You know, he kind of seems to have um um uh, he's very comfortable in uh in himself, and he has two daughters, and um you know so so you know there's a there's a limited perspective that he has for this, you know that um you know just from his experiences that he can pull. So it's like he kind of has to be more broad, um. But I do uh, like one of um one of uh, uh, a statement that he had, and uh, at the end of the movie it says for live. Uh, the dedication yeah and uh, that's uh, dedicated to his wife and uh, he said she was the idea behind the film two years ago I woke up depressed one morning I wasn't born beautiful but my wife was and I thought I wonder what it'd be like to have been born beautiful 
And of course, there's a 16-year-old girl in every man. Funny. We'll get into that in a second. Uh, this is a, uh, this is a way to do my version of her. It made sense going from Drive, which was the height of masculinity and my own fetishization of a hero, and even Only God Forgives, where Ryan's character is my own male obsession deconstructing itself and emasculating itself, trying to crawl back into the womb of the mother. And now I am reborn as a 16-year-old girl. In the end, beauty was what I was making the film about, and the only person I knew around me who was as beautiful was my wife. Um... So the the born as a sixteen year old girl, I find it kind of interesting. Um, uh, I believe it was in the whole movie podcast they described this as winding refin directing in drag. So maybe not him exploring actual queer um feelings that he might need to work out. Um, but you know trying to contextualize feelings that he's had in three different ways, like kind of. Oh, uh, you know, one idea in three different ways than this one being like, okay, I need to kind of take this a uh, little more radical approach to it um, mm-hmm. is, uh, is is fascinating. Yeah, I mean, uh, obviously, for, for obvious reasons, maybe not the person to lend as much uh, insight into this, but I will say like, what... What Nick, what, what you know, what Nick says here, <laughs> uh, not just in this interview, but also in this film about women. Um, I don't know if it is maybe boding as well uh, for kind of his inspiration for this or uh, if it is a supposed gift to his wife or something like this. I think that the statements that he makes about women in this movie, maybe to put it lightly, aren't the most empowering thing in the world. Um, no. I think that there's an empowering sort of uh this power that comes with beauty and the influence that happens with that and maybe this sort of you know uh like he is seemingly doing looking towards others who have this inherent beauty like characters in this movie do towards jesse there's a scene at a restaurant where they talk about jesse is just beautiful she's a beautiful person look at you you've had to shave your chin like to the bone and like you know tuck your ears in and pin your ears and fix your nose and all that kind of stuff like that manufactured beauty which again is another kind of discussion there's a lot of body positivity kind of things that we could kind of talk about with this movie too i will just say like in a kind of general sense i just don't know if this movie is maybe as i don't know if he's a, trying to be like super uh empowering uh, or uplifting well, no, to women he's uh, not. so yeah uh, <laughs> well that's my next point he's not like it, it's this is not a empowering good for her type of movie like this is you know depicting and not every you know female centric movie has to be and like you know we have fun when we watch um you know movies about male characters being you know despicable and evil and mischievous so yeah. for one angle i like it on that angle that we just have bad bitches doing bad bitch shit in this movie sure. um but but also um you know it's in a it's in a way that he's um kind of saying you know beauty um you know also isn't good it's not evil you know beauty just kind of is um, you know, just to bring in one other quote that I really like was um, uh, Neon Demon is about beauty, which is written off by people as being superficial. But generally, people have a very complicated relationship with beauty because it is really about themselves, your own vanity, how you see yourself, narcissism in a way. Elle Fanning and I wanted to make a horror film for a teenage audience about a theme uh, that for them is much more advanced than what we're used to. You and I were brought up to think narcissism is taboo, something negative. 
Uh, my kids' generation, L's generation, see it as a virtue. So it's fascinating and complex. Um, so, like, uh, again, it's like kind of, you know, like, whoa, you know, again, it's like this, this same idea that's kind of been around, but like, you know, recontextualized just like kind of throughout the years of it all. And, um, you know, and, and in one way, you know, it, uh, the, the, the one angle that is kind of interesting is like, you know, uh, you know, narcissism, uh, obviously kind of has, you know, very heavy negative connotations to it. But when you think of, you know, successful people and ambitious people, um, you know, they kind of have that, um, that, uh, that ability in a way to, and that, that pushes them. Um, there's like a lot of, uh, like there's like studies about like how, uh, psychopaths would make, uh, very good business people. And like, uh, obviously does that mean you should be a psychopath and that's a good thing? No, but like there are functioning psychopaths that one aren't, you know, serial killers, um, and yeah, know, one, one of can, them just bought Twitter. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, that alien man, um, <laughs> you know, so, so, you know, it, it, it all just kind of depends. Yeah. Um, I, I think that the movie has just kind of talking about the, the narcissism that maybe even is p- apparent in this industry or any sort of industry, even that you're going to bat for yourself. And you're saying like, I am the one who deserves this position. And in a, in an industry that is about beauty, if you have to go into these photo shoots or these, these gigs or these tryouts or whatever, like you have to kind of wield that sort of narcissism to your, like mm-hmm. you're the person that's supposed to be on that runway. And I deserve to be that person. So I think that there is, this interesting sort of conversation that's being had in this of that like in this world beauty is power and how does that power corrupt you know like i i think that that is an interesting if not uplifting story kind of cautionary tale that is uh being told here of how when you have this you know uh inhibited ambition uh only see seeing others as your competition how does that kind of rot somebody from the inside to the degree that they're willing to do these horrible acts so i think that that aspect of things if not like uplifting others i think still could be compelling maybe not in like an offensive way uh, but in a way of like they, yeah don't do this shit like i'm not condoning yes. it you know <laughs> that that's and that's kind of where i meant in the in the fable aspect you know a fable is you know teaching you a lesson but it's more of a cautionary tale kind of way mm-hmm. and that can be the only kind of positive spin for jesse is the you know the the reason that even though she was killed and consumed but the other girl still died as well because because she did she bought in she goes okay you guys want me to believe that i'm the shit and i'm the most beautiful thing fine i will believe it you guys uh, are telling me that i'm perfect fuck it i'm perfect and like you know again that's how she becomes so powerful takes in the power of the the demon itself and then so so at the end uh yes she is dead but the other girls are dead too so she might not have won but she also didn't lose yeah <laughs> Yeah, the the final scene of this movie with the the eyeball and everything is is pretty pretty jarring. Uh, I think we're glossing over one character in this movie, uh, being Ruby, portrayed by Jenna Malone, which I would say is like kind of the most. Her character has like one of the more <laughs> the more upsetting scenes in this movie, uh, a, a pretty infamous scene um, with this film. I wanted to talk about her and then maybe some of the other supporting characters and how they kind of feed into 
into the story that we see here because I think with Gigi and Sarah, for me at least, it's it's obvious, not in like even a negative way. It's just it's pretty clear how they mm-hmm. feed in. But with Ruby uh, and Dean and Hank in particular, uh, I'd like to talk about some of those characters. So yeah, with Jen Malone and Ruby, mm-hmm. you'd already talked about that she is kind of this which sort of ringleader sort of situation here are there any other like sides to this character that you see well because so since she is the makeup artist she is not a model herself and like even the way that she answers that to jesse when they first meet and she's like oh your mom she like kind of she scoffs at the idea and she kind of scoffs at the idea that she probably did want to be a model at some point but was prob but was possibly told like she didn't meet the the certain standards You know, so she pivots into, okay, well, maybe I can be the makeup artist and I can control the beauty of these models uh, in a way that maybe she couldn't with herself. Um, And because I get like a, you know, that that the the necrophilia scene is meant to be like very pathetic is like what's supposed to be, you know, like um, she's trying her best to 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 get in position with Jesse and to do all these things and to groom her. But things aren't going exactly the way she wants. And, uh, you know, and she obviously has all these suppressed urges as well. And the only, you know, place that, you know, uh, someone else, you know, uh, that she feels that she can uh, get that reciprocation affection back is with the dead bodies at her morgue. You know, so it's like it kind of is like, yeah, it's not supposed to be it's not supposed to be sexy because really no part of this movie is sexy. Um, even though this is a movie of very attractive, gorgeous people and it is shot very visually and aesthetically pleasing, this movie itself isn't a sexual movie. Like it's not concerned with it. Like any, and so like any of those depictions, uh, are like not meant to, except for the, 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 you know, the, the shower scene is like the very, like, you know, one egregious, like, you know, relishing in the beauty of these women uh, taking a shower together covered in blood and then you know but it's like it's making you forget the fact that they just killed and ate a teenage girl you know so it's like uh, this movie isn't caught up in the sexuality of it so with that necrophilia scene it's really it's just like god damn this 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 gal is sad and desperate you know like she is desperate for uh, affection to to feel that what it feels like to have that beauty and that's why she's chasing it and wants to to take uh jesse out yeah i think her character and her job and and the importance that it has sort of to like the overall sort of ideas that this movie is playing with that i find kind of darkly comedic you know darkly comedic in a way is that abby works at this mortuary and and you know pretties up these these corpses for funerals so they look nice so they you know they have open caskets and you know viewings and all those kind of things and i just think it's an it's a funny sentiment that this movie has that like even in death you have to be gorgeous you have to be pretty like i think it's Mm -hmm. it's 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 got a kind of funny sense of humor Mm -hmm. to it the necrophilia scene yeah definitely does have this real pathetic quality to it and uh, that you know she advances against Jesse and that, you know, she, you know, uh, declines her offers. And then she, what does she do immediately next? Like that's the next thing that she can get is kind of, uh, uh is, well, is certainly something, uh, the, the well, yes. Like, yeah. well, I, cause I want to get into that. Cause I'll kind of take into one of the other side characters I find very fascinating mm-hmm. is, you know, she makes that advance on Jesse, which, you know, we don't, uh, one thing we don't love is, uh, the predatory lesbian trope. Like, 
you yeah. know, kind of whatever. But also, in a way, it wasn't a sexual play. It was a power play. Like, this whole thing is she's trying to groom Jesse, but also be the the protector, you know, um, in a way. But she's kind of failing. And, like, one of the scenes where she fails or where she, like, kind of takes her first L is the photo shoot with Jack. Um, you know, yeah. she goes and she's like, uh, this whole time she's been like warning Jesse, like, oh, Jack's a creepy guy. He does this with the women and he's using them, blah, 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 like, and all these things. And she's trying to like kind of psych Jesse out. And then when they get there, she's like, oh, I'm going to be at the photo shoot and I'll watch you and make sure everything's okay. And then she's told to leave, you know, she's told to leave. And like, she like looks at Jesse and Jesse's like, no, go ahead, go. I don't need you to protect me. Mm-hmm. And that's like one, the first instance of Jesse asserting herself. So then later on, that's why she's like kind of making the moves on Jesse to be like, no, I need to reestablish the power. But um, Jack's a fascinating character to me. Uh, the, the photo shoot's kind of one of my favorite scenes of the film. Um, one, because of the expectations of it, it, uh, you know, because Ruby has been setting it up that Jack's a, not a good guy and all these things. And then you go into it and they set it up and he makes everybody leaves and makes Jesse strip and mm-hmm. it's uncomfortable for a moment. But then, you know, you realize Jack doesn't give a shit about Jesse. He doesn't care about any of this. He's here for art. Like he, and they have this moment where, you know, they're, they're creating this photo shoot together and having this moment afterwards Jesse's elated like this is her like having confidence now and like that starts her on the pathway of like you know uh achieving her true power but I like the I like the uh the subversion of Jack because he even looks like a creepy motherfucker he like he doesn't even seem human he's like a fucking like alien man like has like no emotion these piercing blue eyes Mm -hmm. and like in in traditionally you would walk into the scene going oh no like something terrible is gonna happen and it isn't. It's the opposite. It's like the best thing that's happened to Jesse since she's gotten there. And um, it's probably my favorite um, uh, track on the score um, of Cliff Martinez. Um, just the the gold paint. They're in this like kind of void. And he's like splashing paint on her neck and stuff and like taking these pictures. And she's in she's in bliss like she, you know, and uh, it's a, a a wonderfully visual scene. But then also Jack is a interesting character and he comes back at the little epilogue scene as well. So, yeah. Uh, what, what are your thoughts there? I, I do want to note that they mention uh, at the talent agency when she hands them Dean's works like his photographs mm-hmm. that he took over her they refer to it as amateur hour but i also think it's funny that jack's photos are like not significantly better i mean we don't see like the actual photos themselves but his his he's like the the most hot shit photographer in la and his big idea is to stick her in front of a white background <laughs> and put fucking gold paint on her like um i i think that that's funny i don't know if it's intentional or not but dean doesn't seem like that you know uh that subpar or anything like that but yeah desmond harrington i like in this role uh, he's a, a dexter alum if you're mm-hmm. a, a fan of that show uh but yeah he does this really great job this like you know, very robotic cutthroat sort of, um, lifeless performance to it. Uh, and then, yeah, Jesse in this 
white void i think the movie does a great job visually of conveying that isolation too uh and how in this sort of industry being encouraged to go out of your comfort zone uh and especially young women in this industry going out of your comfort zone to achieve success um but i i think it's interesting that this is kind of like a liberating thing for her and is almost like sort of like a gateway drug to it it's Mm -hmm. like yeah it maybe wasn't dangerous this time but you will get addicted to this thing and it's gonna it's gonna bite you in the ass you know 100 percent. yeah so i think that that's like a, a really interesting uh uh turn to this movie we did talk about the scene briefly but i i kind of wanted to throw my two cents in there about like the shower scene being like a scene of male gaze and i, I think it's relevant because this scene with jack is he is kind of like the male gaze in a sense the audience doesn't get like a good look at her for also for lawful reasons uh el fanning was 16 when they filmed the movie but uh mm-hmm. the the shower scene being as you already mentioned showing this horrific act i think it is intentionally and loudly male gazy and i think it's also mm-hmm. like forcing the audience you know like clockwork orange style to have this sort of male gaze too and to be like yeah look how hot and beautiful they are yeah they also just killed this fucking kid but look boobs you know uh i oh, think it's like one, intentionally 100%. trying to like just it's in slow motion and they're touching all over each other it's like super gratuitous in a very obvious way so i yeah i think that is an admittedly male gaze way not i could understand still people being like yeah that doesn't give it a pass that it's knowingly doing this thing but for me i think it is very intentionally trying to to communicate something other than just look hot girls and boobs you know Mm -hmm. well i mean it's very intentional i feel like because it comes at a point in the film you know pretty late and i feel like this is you know for people that um maybe have went into this movie by accident when they were like "Ooh, sexy uh killer models i'm in and then sure. they go into this movie and they're like, why haven't I seen any tits? So then like, <laughs> finally he goes, oh, oh, this is what you've been wanting, you know? Okay, like, well, they're bathing in blood after they just ate somebody. So, and but it's also, again, like, you know, uh, the, the, uh, uh, the, the appreciation of beauty. I mean, it is so slow that it is like obviously very intentional. And like, I mean, he's like, you're going to take in every inch of these, you know, gorgeous women. Right. Which I mean, uh, Abby Lee and Bella Heathcote, yes, yes, please, I will, I'll take it all day, all, all four women in this uh, movie. Oof, I mean, just everybody. This is such a hot cast, like Desmond Harrington too. Yeah, there's like, some, this is uh, a hot interesting cast. names in here that I had no idea who were in this movie. Uh, we have Miss Jodie Turner Smith, uh, who I think is really terrific. Uh, Going to be an upcoming Star Wars alum. I'm excited to see her. Uh, but she was really great in Queen and Slim, if you've seen that. Uh, but then mm-hmm. also one Miss Jamie Clayton, uh, Pinhead herself. So uh, uh, she's in the movie as the casting director. So uh, it was cool to see some familiar Whoa, faces uh, pop back. Realized that was her. Yeah, yeah. Oh snap! That uh, is that, that is uh, super cool. Yeah. Uh, and then, you know, and then you got Christina Hendricks, you know, who popped up in Drive. Of course. Um, you know, coming back in and again, kind of, she's a uh, uh, Jesse's agent, her fairy godmother, if you will. Yeah. Um, but then you have uh, Mr. Keanu Reeves playing against type. Uh, love to see that. Yeah, um, like at the very beginning of the Keanu Sans, you know, like not quite there, uh, but definitely on the on. It the was uptick. a Bruin. It was a Bruin, absolutely. Yeah, I wanted to get your read on Hank as a character because on the first watch, he was an enigma to me, and he has not really escaped that classification. So I well, kind of want to know what your read is on Hank as a character. 
he's that he's that looming like danger of LA. Like you know, she's she's living in a hotel, you know, hotel room. Um, and he obviously, through some of his dialogue, he rents out to underage girls that come here looking for a dream. Um, you know, he makes some very disgusting comments about like a 13 year old girl that he's telling yeah, Dean he, to he, go. He does like, more than on. that, too. Yeah. Uh, 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 yeah. Like uh, uh, room 15. Gotta be seen. Uh, love that line. Um, uh, but ad, yeah, an ad libbed line, apparently. Yeah. And uh, but this is he's that he's just that looming danger because like he's, you know, obviously the, you know, not her landlord, but he's the manager of this hotel room. So like, um, you know, she's under his thumb. He's always around. Uh, he's kind of stalks around. He's creepy. Um, and like, obviously, you know, Jesse is surrounded, you know, generally by, you know, obviously not not the girls, but some of the other um, adult characters are people, you know, that seemingly are looking out for her best interests where it's like Hank is, you know, very explicitly not like he is. This is like the shit you need to always, you know, like reminding you that you got to have your head on a swivel, you know, that you uh, might be put in a situation with a Hank when you like first move out here. So uh, that's that's really kind of uh, where I the, the main that I get from him, you know, in the in the kind of few scenes we get with him. Yeah, I'm I'm wondering because like I think maybe my my hang up is I think you're right in that Hank is supposed to represent rock bottom of like if you don't make it in this industry, this is what is going to come for you um, is and I, I think maybe a more compelling angle is maybe something a little less obvious because Hank is a pedophilic murderer rapist like he's a horrible in a very obvious he's way opportunistic person. absolutely but I yeah. think it would almost be a little bit more compelling to be like what's rock bottom for these people it's not that you're going to be assaulted and murdered and killed in some random hotel I think it's like obscurity is like the the rock bottom for these people is as far as like yeah if you don't make it in this industry you're just going to be nobody on an old navy ad you well, know see, like, I don't I don't see it as I don't see it as rock bottom I see it as the opposite like this is like oh this is where you got to start off like you got to pay your dues and you got to live in the a hotel with the creepy manager like sure. I, I I see it more in that angle so like in like uh okay you got to take this risk of living here but like you're taking the risk kind of dealing with this creepy man that could sure. fucking break in and do whatever to you so it's like sure. uh the the just like the high caution there yeah, I and again, yeah. Winding Reference said like all the, the the male characters were literally just meant to kind of kind of dress the the scene, and um, even even Dean is a is a play on you know the uh, the typical good guy uh, character in a lot of films. Like, no, he he really is the the one in her corner and out for her best interest. But it's like, no, he's not. He's either a um, still trying to get with her, knowing that she's underage, like after she even tells him. Right. But then also he's trying to use her to get in because he's like, oh, did you tell him I took the photos? Like, did you show him my photos? So yeah. he's also just trying to use her, but under the guise of being yeah. a good guy. Like, and, ooh, and he, let me go. Yeah, he also 100% tries to kiss her too after knowing that she's 16. So <laughs> Exactly, yeah. yeah. And, and, and oh, I'll go be the tough guy to your manager. And then like, yeah. Um, and then the, the awkward, uh, you know, dinner scene after the, the fashion show, but like, yeah, he, he's under the guys like, no, no, I am a nice guy. Like I'm, I'm, I'm your best friend, you know, but like also, sure. Oh, I have feelings for you and I, and you know, all these things. So, um, a lot of the supporting characters are, you know, just, uh, kind of, you know, again, especially with the male characters, uh, are just kind of cardboards. 
uh, taken up some space. Um, but uh, again, um, you know, the, the, to kind of wrap stuff up and I just want to kind of shout out a couple more of the, 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 words, the, yeah. the really, the, the visual moments that, uh, kind of, you know, really make this and, you know, there, there's visual moments, um, but then also, um, kind of just like highlight scenes, like, again, like, uh, people don't really like Refn's dialogue, but I kind of compare him to a, uh, like a Yorgos Lanthimos. It's like, this is, um, how aliens would interpret humans as talking you know it's like not sure. not not quite right there so it's like um you know the the bathroom scene um i want to ask your opinion about because um it kind of goes into the, the the metaphorical cannibalism um but is also you know a thesis of you know refin kind of stating his opinions on the industry of are you food or are you sex you know that they are constantly selling women as something to eat or to be eaten um, you know, or to indulge in, you know, in, in some way. And I've always, uh, I've always loved this, uh, little bathroom conversation. Um, it's not, yeah, it's not a, a deal breaker for me. It's also like kind of a, an interesting observation that he makes almost kind of like Jerry Seinfeld energy. He's like, what's the deal with lipstick? <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, yes. Uh, so like, I think that, yeah, that's like, a, it's not a, a deal breaker for me. I think that if people are going to point to some of the dialogue in this film, which I think is a totally fair criticism, um, I think that there are maybe some other scenes that are, are a bit more uh, egregious, but yeah, this one doesn't stand out to me as, as much. It's fine. Uh, and yeah, I, I think it's an interesting thing to, a note for sure yeah and um and 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 going on from that that bathroom scene um you know uh this extended club scene is uh just kind of interesting to me i like i, I think it's a real nice tone setter um and it is kind of that it's one of those early indication scenes of like hey this is kind of gonna be the vibe for the rest like again like they walk into this party and it's so loud that they like can't really speak to each other. Sure. And then they watch this like super abstract, you know, show and they don't really know what's going on and they, they don't even know whose party it is. They're just like, you know, El, uh, Jesse's like, Oh, like what, what kind of party is? It? And they're just like, you know, a, a fun kind where we're, we're just going to go because that's what we do. You right. Know? Like, yeah. let, let's show you the ropes of, uh, you know, and, um, just, uh, I really love, love the, the score during this club scene, some of the music choices as well are uh, really great and i just feel like if if you want to really uh kind of condense down you know what this film is you could kind of take from that bathroom and club scene and then like also the the uh the interview scene with the agent and like that that's kind of like distilling down like if you like this chunk of the movie then uh you're gonna like the rest um but the last scene i wanted to ask you about was um because uh, i know you have said there's kind of some cliche scenes in this movie and uh the one where we uh, have the casting room scene where, you know, Elle is uh, sitting around, you know, dozens of women that look just like her as we've already seen with the supporting characters. But, um, you know, it's placed in just like this very sterile room and everybody's sitting very uncomfortable, you know, and uh, mm -hmm. it's just a very like awkward vibe. And like, so I like that we get like some of the like awkward cringe horror as well yeah. in some yeah. of these scenes. I think that's honestly probably my favorite scene in the movie is the audition scene um, mm. because I think that there are some interesting um, acting uh, uh, moments in there, uh, particularly of the, the the casting director who it's funny. There's like some big. Uh, it reminds me of the the scene in in La La Land where. Uh, 
Emma Stone like goes to the the audition and the people are just like not even looking at her. They're just like on her phone. And I, I think that that's funny that this also kind of has that beat too, to where that's just like unanimously something mm-hmm. that LA people agree on. It's like, oh my God, you drive f- 45 minutes to an audition. You get ready. You do the makeup. You remember the lines. You, you go to the thing. You're sitting there. You're crying. And this person can't even be bothered to look up from their cell phone, you know? So I think that there's some humor in this scene too, but I think that there's also some nice um, subtleties in uh, the performances and how, you know, uh, Jesse is able to capture the attention of everybody. Um, I also think visually it's nice breaking up of it's not just like an assault of neon lights and colors and rbgs it's like Mm -hmm. in the sterile kind of white room and yeah i i think that that scene works really well for me i think that it communicates a lot with like i think that's the scene i've seen people note that this movie would be much better if you turned off the the dialogue and it was like a silent film. And I think that that scene is maybe the best example of like how this movie is able to communicate its story through visuals. So yeah, I I really like that scene. I think it's great. I've said, I've said that before too. Like this could totally function as a silent film. I mean, you can still throw out the subtitles of what they're saying if you wanted to, but like, I mean, yeah, if if you want to shave some, uh, shave some scenes out a little bit and then uh, take out the dialogue, totally could watch this as a silent film and and that scene too is uh one of the few moments uh fucking abby lee's performance in this movie is very uh underrated she has a lot of really great acting with her eyes and uh some yeah. of these like subtle expressions because in that scene is the scene where she like realizes oh okay jesse is about to replace me yeah because before like, you know, that too she's like oh, she's not that big of a deal and then she's like fuck you and know? then she witnesses it you <laughs> yeah know, there's she the, sees, the new guard you know yeah. yeah she she sees how enraptured the casting director is you know like oh my yeah. god like yeah, this girl is you know something else and uh funny because i the casting director played by uh, alessandro Navolo. yes uh i i always get him and desmond harrington mixed up and then they're casted in the same movie because uh, at certain points, they they look alike, and it's uh funny to me. But uh, he's a uh, really great now. Uh, the art of self defense. Oh, I was just gonna say that is literally like one of my favorite movies of the past like fifteen years. He's fucking awesome in that movie. <laughs> he is uh, so good. Uh, yeah. So uh, and and Abby Lee, uh, continuing on her underrated performance too in the in the epilogue scene where the uh, Gigi and Sarah they've consumed her. And, uh, you know, we see it working a little bit. They show up to this uh, photo shoot and it's for Gigi, but then Sarah goes along. But since uh, Sarah's uh, eaten uh, Jesse, he's like, um, oh, like, let me replace the other girl with uh, Sarah. So it's like, oh, hey, it's kind of working a little bit. But then uh, we see we see the girls uh, both get sick. And um, and I I plan on getting a uh, neon demon tattoo and it's going to be an eyeball within within a mouth, uh, Sarah's mouth. Yeah. Um, because the, this whole scene right here, again, with like no dialogue, um, you know, you have Gigi choking and she's like spitting up blood and she's uh, saying like she's she's in me and I got to get her out and like that she's trying to kill me from the inside. And uh, I just love this whole little uh, whole epilogue scene. It, it's so and this is like the epitome of it being like so doused in color, so saturated, so bright. Mm-hmm. Um, and then like, you know, go, going out on a bang. So I, I really do love this, um, uh, the epilogue scene. Yeah. I also, I like the detail that when she coughs up the eye, like, uh, like that, uh, I believe that Sarah 
picks it up and eats it again because it's like mm-hmm. no, no morsel of this influence is going to be left yeah, on the she's floor. She's like, oh, you, you know? can't handle it? Like, yeah. Gigi, you can't handle it? Like, no, I can handle it. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, as far as we know, Sarah, uh, you know, maybe lives on. Uh, we, we don't exactly know. But, yeah. Um, but yeah, so uh, which uh, will bring us to the ratings. I was going to do it out of five eyeballs. Um, so, so after, uh, hearing my thesis and, uh, your, your rewatch of the film, uh, 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 how many eyeballs are you giving the neon demon? Yeah, I definitely appreciate your enthusiasm and your excitement and your, your eagerness to, to find clues and, you know, maybe some of these hidden meanings or, or, you know, character interactions and, or even character archetypes too. For me, I still think that the issues that I have with the film stand, but I, I also think it's interesting that like in a lot of my criticisms, you're like, yeah, right. You know, I think it's funny that like a lot of, it's not even criticisms. It's just like, it just really is a difference in taste and like what we go into movies for. And I think that this one is not, I think this is one of those movies that people cast judgment on like the person's even like character if people like it i i know when this movie came out people were like you like that movie and like that was either a condemnation of the type of person you are or the movie fan that you are i definitely don't consider that one for me it's just not quite my speed or maybe not what i go to movies for i think it's a great music video i'll, I'll say that i think that's <laughs> the quickest way i can sum up my thoughts is i think uh, uh nicholas winding reffin made a really cool music video um but everything else for me it's just it's not enough to really love it or hate it for me it's just kind of right there in the middle of the road which is why this is at a two and a half out of five eyeballs for myself oh oh man two and a half i thought i might have talked you into a three sorry buddy um uh because yeah it is so funny that like a lot of the criticism because i was like yeah i can't really like fight some of the things you're saying (laughs) like you're not wrong but like these are this this is my jam y'all like this uh this really is uh my vibe if i had to like like if I had to tell somebody like, yo, what 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 is my taste in movies like? It's it's this. You know, it's this and American Psycho. Like those are like the two that kind of uh really uh sum up my my kind of taste in in film for for a general speaking. So Sure. And and I mentioned like, you know, I've had uh quite the journey with this film that uh you know, I love rewatching movies. Um, you know, I've mentioned it in my ratings that rewatchability kind of uh favors heavily in that um, because if it's a film that inspires me to want to keep coming back to like want to keep mining it uh, makes me want to compile a year's worth of notes on it you know like you know that that movie uh, means a lot to me in that kind of aspect and uh, and yeah I just uh, I just kind of keep getting more from it um, I didn't even like re-listen to like my horror queers episode but I already like know that you can listen to these two episodes and they're completely different like you know like that's uh kind of uh how much i kind of have for this film yeah and uh and uh yeah it, it it's just a, it's just a, is it your taste you know it it all boils down to uh, what kind of candy you like i love me some sour gummy candies that's my jam me too. and that's this movie this movie is a sour gummy <laughs> uh a sour gummy worm a bag of them sour sour gummy eyeballs that's what uh this, there you uh, go that's the candy that this movie is. Um, so for, you know, personal biases and, you know, my, you know, just taste in film and um, all those things. This is a five out of five for me. 
um 100 I, I i adore this movie what can i say yeah this is one that i definitely understand how it could be somebody's jam it's unfortunately just not mine but if there's any unifying theme that we can you know garner from cannibalism month it's that there are differences in taste which i can appreciate yeah there we go thank you for that All right, here on the Bloody Blunt Cinema Club. Oh, I did it. Oh, no. Here on Spectre Cinema Club. <laughs> here on Spectre Cinema Club, we like to end our episodes playing a fun game here called Movie Math. Uh, the rules are simple. You just have to take a few movies. You can add them together, multiply them, divide, uh, even subtract, uh, all of which just have to equal the movie that we talked about today. Uh, Devon, I'm interested to hear your equation because I imagine this is one that you were spending hours late night just hammering away at this <laughs> anvil, you know, just ching. And then, and, then, and then you saw it in the notes and you saw it came in pretty simple on this one. <laughs> yes. Yeah, because, so. uh, I mean, it, it, it very much boils down to like, you know, two films in particular. One was the film I double featured it with uh, in the very first episode of the podcast, which is Starry Eyes, another film that I really love. Already got a tattoo of that movie as well. And it was funny because, yeah, I saw them around the same time and I was like, oh, my God, like they are doing so many of the same things. It's a, a you know, cautionary trying to make it in L.A., um, uh, vibe. Um, but it, it tries to maybe go for, uh, an, a very complicated empowering approach, um, exploring again, you know, gender and power dynamics within the industry. Um, a woman ends up getting possessed by this film company and, uh, you see her, um, you know, kill and shed her, uh, her former self to become something new, and, uh, it, and, you know, it's a, it's a brutal film. Uh, it's also very melancholic. Um, it has a body horror exploration that's not only physical, but also like, uh, psychological as well. Um, and it's a fantastic film. It was, uh, the directing duo that did the Pet Cemetery remake, which I hear people didn't like much, but, uh, go, go check out Starry Eyes. It's a, a phenomenal little gem of a movie and it does make a very uh a, a nice parallel to this film because it's a uh, it's colder um it, you know and but also still has uh, some of these same hypnotic and otherworldly elements to it so uh yeah definitely check out starry eyes might do a redux episode on that one actually no i won't because you can go uh, listen to my episode on a daily horror habit with jay and we talk starry eyes so there you go if you want more more thoughts on starry eyes go check out that and then I have it added together with uh, Suspiria from 1978 um, uh, for obvious reasons. I mean, not only the visual aesthetic, the the score, the the colors, the look, uh, the lingering of the cameras, all those kind of things. This movie kind of feels like a reimagining of Suspiria. You got three, mm-hmm. you know, witchy characters, you know, and they're uh, seeking out the, the, the new, the pure new girl, you know, and all these things like there's. Uh, very similar uh, parallels to Suspiria. I mean, this could be looked at as a reimagining, or this could be uh, this could be in the in the Suspiria universe. This could be a spinoff in the uh, cinematic uh, Suspiria cinematic universe. And uh, you know, we're we're gonna talk the Suspiria movies here on the podcast uh, uh, in the in the not too distant future. So uh, we will definitely get more into it there, but uh, for obvious reasons. So you know, you've really put uh, Suspiria and Starry Eyes together. You get this movie. Yeah, absolutely. Suspiria, too, uh, stylistically, I think is is such a big one. But you're exactly right. This n- person in a new environment trying to climb their way up to this thing that they've worked so hard to achieve, and 
you know, uh, who are the others who are not so uh, eager to let this new guard kind of come in there. So, yeah, I'm fascinated uh, to to rediscover Suspiria. I've seen it. it's been a number of years uh, and uh, also taking a look at the new Suspiria. Um, it's going to be really interesting to talk about those. Uh, for myself, uh, another one that I have is kind of for um, obvious reasons. Um, I have Black Swan, uh, also about a person trying to achieve this goal, achieve this status, and what do they sacrifice about themselves in order to do so. Obviously, there's definitely some horror elements um, in the two of those, this very transformative sort of experience. Uh, there's also a lot of uh, queer text uh, in both of the mm-hmm. films and a, a queer reading that you could see um, of both of those. And then also this idea of like you becoming this sort of villain character that you were fighting so hard against and like, you know, what happens in that. Um, I have that added. I, I consider don't spoil it for me. Cause I haven't seen it. Just what the story that I'm, that I'm going to tell the, the movie that I'm adding here. Yes. Oh man. Okay. Interesting. Okay. I was going to say, um, <laughs> please don't spoil it. Cause I've, I've managed to not have it spoiled yet and I still haven't seen it. Roger so, that. But go okay. Ahead. So I was considering multiplying it, but I'm going to add it, uh, instead. Um, I'm adding Maholan drive. So for the people who have seen the film, I think that there are, yes, you have this story about a person coming to LA trying to achieve this sort of success. And I think that both films do have very dreamlike qualities to them. But without spoiling kind of the twist of the movie, I think both films play with this idea of this person that you aspire to be or this person that you could perhaps one day be. Um, And I will leave it at that because I don't want to accidentally spoil it for Devon. But yeah, do yourself a favor. Watch Mulholland (laughs) Drive. I'll go watch Starry Eyes and you'll watch Mulholland Drive. Yeah, yeah. Whenever uh, whenever you bring me uh, back my Chucky Blu-rays, you'll have to give me a couple uh, Blu-rays of things that I need to watch. Yeah, I just watched... Uh, um, my list I, is expanding. I just watched Curse of Chucky last night, so we're getting there. We're getting there. Nice. Hell yeah. I'll uh, get your thoughts of that off air. But uh, yeah, we our, our movie math is uh, pretty simple here because I definitely say that uh, Nicholas Wining Refn, uh, you know, wears his inspirations on his sleeve uh, big time uh, within this film. Um, and again, I was uh, happy to get to redo this one and uh, kind of give it its uh, proper shine, at least for me. But uh, just uh, look out next year because I'm just going to hop on somebody else's podcast. I'm going to do it again. I'm just going to continue to do it until um, that sounds I'm finally... like a threat. <laughs> I, yeah, it, right. I'll do it again. <laughs> I swear to God. <laughs> right. Uh, I, I got to be known as the Neon Demon guy. That's got that's to be me. I got to take that title from Nicholas Winding Refn. He is not the Neon <laughs> Demon guy. I'm the Neon Demon guy. Um, but yeah, so we are going to talk Eddie the Sleepwalking Cannibal next week, though. So go ahead and seek that one out and make sure you watch it before next week's episode. Uh, but Garrett, uh, where are you working on right now? Uh, you guys can find me over on uh, Twitter, Letterboxd, uh, TikTok as well, um, just at Garrett McDowell. Uh, always talking about movies on one of those platforms. Uh, if you want to hear some more podcast goodness that you can put in your ears, you guys can subscribe to the Scum and Villainy podcast. That is my uh, Star Wars podcast. Uh, always new episodes dropping. We actually just had one drop uh, today, the day of recording. So we'd love to have you over on there. Well, what about you, Devon? Uh, you know, same old, same old. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at underscore Daddy Disco, Letterboxd, of course. Um, I'm, I'm coming in for a record year on Letterboxd, so I'm, I'm pretty pumped. I'm trying to really jam them in at the end of the year uh, right now. So Proud uh, of you. make sure you're 
keeping up on that. Um, and you can, of course, uh, hear me doing some other podcast stuff. Uh, make sure you are following um, Chandler's uh, Spread the Beauty um, podcast feed because that is where Pins and Pleasure is coming out and we are going through the Hellraiser movies over there. So make sure you guys uh, go follow that. And then you can also hear me on the Church of Tarantino podcast. Um, we went through Django Unchained. It was a fantastic time. Um, kind of bringing some of my horror sensibilities to the uh, the cowboy uh, revenge slavery movie that is Django. And um, uh, it's one of my more academic conversations, so I, I highly recommend it. I actually came with serious notes <laughs> and serious uh, theories and thoughts in that I'm wearing I'm wearing off on you, Devon. Watch out. <laughs> I, I came in I came in uh, blunts, guns a-blazing on that one. And then we also, uh, I guested on that podcast, doing a scene study of um, of uh, Samuel Jackson's infamous uh, blowjob in the snow scene of The Hateful Eight. Um, it was uh, really fun breaking down that entire scene. So uh, go follow that podcast and uh, you can hear that stuff. But now go ahead and do it for this week's episode of the Spectre Cinema Club. New episodes drop every Tuesday. Subscribe to not miss a thing. You can follow us on social media at Spectre Cinema on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. And if you're listening on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, leave us five stars, a nice little review. We appreciate you. But until next time, guys, stay lifted. <laughs>